Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Damari brown And I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Coming up on today's episode... Throughout history, many of our presidents are born on or near a solar eclipse. In fact, a solar eclipse birthday is known as the kingmaker in astrology. It made me think, if not president, then he's certainly stepping up into power in some other way. Today's the day. Mercury is out of retrograde and we are talking about astrology. Yes, we're going to do something a bit different today. Instead of doing an interview, we're going to be delving deep into one cultural trend. Like it or not, astrology has really exploded in popularity recently, and this iteration of astrology looks quite different. Think less 1970s psychedelic Age of Aquarius woo-woo, <laughs> and more 2019 Soho House, W Hotel trendy, Instagram influencer. That's the vibe. That is totally the vibe. And as we are devoted to understanding on this show what is happening in the culture, we're interested in why it's reemerged in the past five years and why on Earth or in the stars, and that will be my last pun, that um, astrology is resonating so palpably right now. A lot of you emailed us your thoughts, which we're going to be sharing through the episode, and thank you for those. Uh, We also spoke with one of New York's most prominent astrologers. Her name is Rebecca Gordon. She's super interesting. Her clients range from CEOs and Wall Street types to artists to young professionals. Uh, She told us about her practice, as well as predictions about Brexit and the U.S. election. And she, at the end, gave Grizz and me a compatibility reading to get a sense of what it's like to get a reading from an astrologer. But before we get into that, this is a big moment. Yeah, that's true. You may have noticed that at the top line, it wasn't Grizz in London and Lila in New York. It is Grizz and Lila now together in London. In the same studio. Yeah, in the same studio. I like can't make eye contact with you. I'm so <laughs> not used to it. <laughs> this has been, yeah, it's been amazing. Um, this is the first time that we have seen each other in the flesh since everything started, probably in about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've been doing a lot of bonding this week. Yeah, we've been doing some fun things, apart from obviously working hard in the studio. Exactly. Um, We had a a power breakfast with our producer (laughs) at a restaurant called Sketch in London. I'm really glad you suggested it. It's like a very quirky restaurant. Yeah, it's like each room has a different theme. Yeah. Um, There's one that's kind of very chintzy and floral. There's others that feel more contemporary. It's almost like walking into a stage set in each one. It feels like an Alice in Wonderland mm, situation. Definitely. And at the moment, they're doing a Christmas Wonderland thing, which I kind of loved, actually. I mean, it's like walking into a sort of old-fashioned Christmas card of sort of Victorian London. I think when I went through the door, it was actually snowing inside. So I got like the full effect. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Anyway, everything about it was really interesting. And and it was an opportunity for us to scheme up big plans for the new year, including big guests, new topics, things we want to do next year, uh, things we're excited to bring you. We're also talking about our final episode of the year, which is in two weeks' time, and it's going to be a wrap-up of the best 
books, TV shows, movies and trends that we've loved in 2019. And we're still collecting recommendations from our listeners. So please email us or tweet us and let us know what you've been obsessed with. Some trends I've been thinking about, for example, <laughs> which aren't necessarily movies and TV shows, although those I like to, are um, there's a big uh, interest in big headbands these days that I'm curious about. Uh, I have a lot of people in my life that really um, have a lot to say about turmeric. There also seems to be like a new interest in in drinking less. I don't know if that's a thing mm. that's happening in the UK, but it's definitely happening in the US. There's less pressure to have a drink. And I'm interested in chia seeds. <laughs> <laughs> they're in my water. <laughs> and I'm not sure how I feel about them. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, they're a little uh, soggy. Anyway, uh, the way to reach out to us is at FT Culture Call on Twitter or culturecall at ft.com by email. Lila, tell me what you've been up to since you arrived in London. Other than eating scotch eggs, hanging out with you, <laughs> um, going to meetings, I have been every night going home and watching season three of The Crown. And do you like it? Yes, I'm loving it. I have in my head the way that the FT's TV reviewer, Susie Fay put it. She says we now have a middle-aged, slightly dusty monarch. <laughs> and that's true. The queen is now Olivia Coleman, who's incredible. She's mm. from Fleabag and um, The Favourite. And Princess Margaret is now Helena Bonham Carter uh, of Fight Club and like every Tim Burton movie that, <laughs> that yep. has ever been. Um, and it's really a tough thing, I imagine, to replace actors with older actors. Uh, mm. And uh, this time it really worked. I found them perfect. There's one episode that puts them right next to each other, which I really recommend. It's episode two. Um, Margaret goes to America and she wins everybody over for being fabulous and fun and drinking a lot and laughing a lot and everything basically that her sister isn't. Uh, and she is in a situation where she has to convince President Lyndon B. Johnson to give the British government a bailout. And she wins him over with a drinking contest and like <laughs> four dirty limericks in a row. And the queen on the other side is listening in on her trip uh, with this curiosity and mm. kind of embarrassment, um, but also kind of jealousy. Um that Margaret can be what she can't. That kind of drives the episode, the struggle between being boring and being dazzling or, like, mm. you know, being responsible and being free. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't got to that episode yet. I've only watched one so far. Um, and it reminded me why I love it and it's and it's so addictive. Yeah. And why I find it a bit kind of OTT and annoying. <laughs> yeah. The thing I like about it is that um, it dramatizes these sort of episodes of very recent British history that we don't really learn about. And so there's all these like crazy things that happened not that long ago that if you're British, it feels like you should know about them, mm. even though they're not all true. And there's obviously a lot of fiction in there. It's bringing to life these things which are crazy. Wow. I just assumed that British people knew everything that happened in the crowd. No, I don't think so. That's I think that's kind of part of the appeal of it. Yeah. What I find appealing about it also is that... Um, and I'm and I'm an American looking in, so everything mm -hmm. about it is sort of intriguing and I don't have to have as complicated a relationship with the monarchy <laughs> as you do. Um, but it makes me think about the changing face of the monarchy now. Like, I'm curious to see how the old guard crumbles. You yeah. start to see that happening in the show. And then we're like watching in real life as that's happening in, in, in real time, especially in an age of radical transparency like now where you can't just put a lid on it. You know, people are watching from everywhere. The monarchy doesn't just have like one place where it can shout its message and then close the doors behind it. Mm. 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, thinking about the recent interview that Prince Andrew did, where he was addressing his problematic relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. On one hand, he sort of got the message that you have to be transparent and open and that you can't just hide in Buckingham Palace. Um, But it's like he only half got the memo and it sort of backfired spectacularly. Like he knew that he needed to address the problem Mm -hmm. and give the interview, but he somehow didn't realise he also had to appear likeable and open and (laughs) honest and get his story straight. You know, and instead he came across as, you know, extremely entitled and like he probably wasn't telling the truth. That's how it seemed anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... He definitely came across as extremely entitled. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that that whole thing felt like it could be a modern episode of The Crown. Yes, I'm just really looking forward to the when The Crown gets to now. Yeah, and you know, this show has made me think a lot about Meghan Markle's I'm Not Okay interview. Mm-hmm. Like, I found it a very powerful moment because it felt like you could see the old school and the new school colliding behind her eyes. There's a chance now that a couple like that can just decide to hold, totally reframe a message mm. or decide to just up and leave Buckingham Palace or decide to up and leave England. And that's an option. And that's new. Grizz, what about you? What have you been up to? I went to an exhibition a few days ago of um, an artist called Dora Maar at Tate Modern. Um, oh, she, I wanted to see that. Yeah, she, so she, I didn't know much about her before. I sort of knew her name. Um, she was a photographer and a painter in the 20th century and kind of did almost everything. Um, The exhibition starts with some of her kind of fashion shoots and erotic photography and then moves on to kind of street photography that was very much informed by her sort of left-wing politics. There's also quite a lot of surrealism in there. Um, She was friends with all the surrealists in the 1930s and made these amazing Mm. kind of photo collages um, and sort of photo montages. Um, She is also famous for Another reason, which is that she was the mistress and muse of Picasso. Ah, um, yes. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> I've introduced her in the same way that the show does, which is to kind of put her work at the front. So yeah. it's until I think it's over halfway through the exhibition that you actually, if you didn't know anything about her, um, you wouldn't know that she was the mistress of Picasso. And then it kind of comes to the fore. She's actually the subject of one of his most famous paintings, which is in the collection at Tate, called Weeping Woman. Wow. It's very kind of anguished and very powerful and very famous. It's funny, like what what I learned from the show um, is that actually they really influenced each other. It's not that Picasso didn't influence her. So he kind of basically persuaded her to take up painting again because she hadn't really been painting. Um, But she influenced him a lot. He hadn't really been very political until then. Um, And she was very political and very radical. And she persuaded him basically to kind of take up the cause. And that's when he started working on um, Guernica, his famous sort of anti-war painting um, about about the bombing in Spain. Um, So she kind of had a big hand in that, which I didn't know anything about. Yeah. What was their relationship like? I mean... Picasso is a very complicated figure and I think um, problematic would be probably an understatement for his <laughs> relationships with women generally. Just slightly. Um, yeah. <laughs> she, I mean, you know, it, it didn't end well. She, I think, had pretty complicated mental health after that. And one thing that we know, at the same time that she that she was with him, he was also still married and he was with this other woman called Marie-Therese Walter. And Dora Maar paints this amazing picture of herself and Marie Therese uh, sort of sitting on a bench together. It's very kind of claustrophobic, um, very full of emotion. Wow. It shows just, I mean, just how, 
yeah, it it really depicts what it must have been like to be in this kind of multi-way relationship, I think. It's it's basically a really kind of revelatory show. Um, the work is, is amazing. And but one of the things I really liked about this show is it it's trying to put Dora Maar kind of back into art history. Um, and in that sense, it's similar to quite a lot of other shows that have been on in London in the last few years, um, sort of giving women their due in, in the history of art. Excellent. Lila, on this podcast, we usually have conversations with people who are pushing culture forward. So why are we, why are we talking about astrology now? How did we get here? <laughs> yeah, so over the past five or so years, I noticed a rise in people asking me what my moon sign was and what my rising sign was, both of which were totally foreign concepts to me that I had never heard. Then about a year ago, I had a few friends for dinner and one suggested I download this new app called CoStar uh, so that we could look at our compatibility. And we ended up down this total multi-hour wormhole where we looked at our compatibility and then um, we started discussing our personalities and our tendencies and whether it was right or whether it was wrong and who we are and who we were as children and all of that um, in really ridiculous detail. And then once you start opening your eyes to a trend or noticing something, it suddenly appears everywhere. You see it everywhere. Exactly. Um, so, you know, over the past few years, I've noticed this huge surge in interest in astrology and however you feel about it. And we'll talk about how we feel about it. Um, the fact is, is that it's a huge and growing business. Um, CoStar has more than six and a half million users. It has more than six million dollars in venture funding. Um, that sounds like a lot. I know. I mean, it's not really a lot, but okay. still it has venture funding, which mm-hmm. in itself is weird. There are millions of people following astrology meme accounts across Twitter and Instagram places like Trash Bag Astrology, which is extremely popular, places like Not All Geminis. Um, And then there are celebrity astrologers like a woman named Susan Miller and someone named Shawnee Nicholas. And so it's a moment. Americans are spending more than $2.2 billion a year on what is very mysteriously called mystical services. (laughs) (laughs) I love that as a (laughs) catch-all. Yeah, I know, Uh, which could be Reiki and other healing things as well as astrology. And uh, we wanted to explore it. Yeah. And you explored um, some of the business um, and the and the reasons for the rise of astrology in a piece that you wrote for the FT recently, which we've put in our show notes. And it's interesting to me that it seems like it's more of a trend in America than it is here, which probably means it's going to get big here very soon, because I think sometimes <laughs> trends work like that. But I'm interested to sort of get back to the basics. At the top of the show, you said Mercury is out of retrograde, which is very poetic and beautiful, <laughs> but I'm not quite sure what it means. Um, okay. I have to put both my feet down for this. <laughs> oh, God. And this is in the way. Okay. Okay. So um, I am going to explain astrology to you. Um, first of all, astrology is a pseudoscience. <laughs> Let me put the disclaimer here. Uh, it is not a proven science, of course. Uh, there is a spectrum of skepticism. A lot of people don't believe it. A lot of people both believe it and don't at the same time. That's all fine. But when you pick up a newspaper on the train and you read your horoscope, this is what it's looking at. Basically, we have a sun sign. Everybody knows their sun sign. It's the sign you know. I'm a Libra. You're a... Aries. Aries. Okay. Um, and there are 12 of them. And an astrologer will look at a picture of where the planets are going in the near future and see what's coming our way. So maybe there's a solar eclipse. Maybe Mercury is in retrograde, which just means that Mercury is passing Earth in its orbit around the sun. Ah, That's okay. all it means. Okay. Astrology believes that that has an effect on the energies of the Earth things like this. Um, 
They say that when Mercury is in retrograde, it's more difficult to communicate. But anyway, <laughs> so astrologer sees what's coming up and then they look at how it will affect every sign. Right. But it seems like what you read in a free paper on the tube or whatever is different from what CoStar is doing. Yeah. So the, the rise of technology has added an extra level of nuance to what was normally just like a quick read. You don't just have a sun sign like Aries. You also have a Mercury sign and a Venus sign and a Mars sign and a moon sign and a Jupiter sign. And they all sit in different places depending on where and when you were born. So if you go to an astrologer for your own reading or if you sign into CoStar, they ask you for your birth date, for your exact birth time, and for the location of your birth. And then the technology will create a snapshot of the sky at the time that you were born. And whatever that is has an effect on the energies of the earth and the energies of the planets around you and basically gives you some semblance of who you are. According to astrologers. According to astrologers. (laughs) Exactly. So then they'll overlay your birth chart with where the planets are today or next week or next month to make predictions about you. Or they can look at where the planets are going over the coming years in general to predict big social changes or trends or, you know, they can look at two charts like yours and mine together and suggest ways in which we're compatible. I've always thought of myself as a rational sort of person and my instinct is to be skeptical about most things, including astrology. But what I am interested in is the fact that so many people are interested in it and it's become a kind of theme. Yeah. So you're... You could say I'm astro curious. (laughs) (laughs) Astro curious. Okay. So this is the real sticking point of the commenters below my story in FT Weekend Mm -hmm. was like, is it real? And people were actually quite upset that we were taking it seriously at all because it so clearly to them was not. Um, It can be easily explained away with two psychological phenomena. One is the placebo effect, that a belief in something can actually cause real effects on the mind and body. Um, And then the second is the Barnum effect, which is that if details are vague enough, people will accept information as true just because they want to. (laughs) Um, And so I guess it's something to be taken with a grain of salt. I mean, I can't make a judgment. Like, it's not proven. Um, Many people find that it has meaning to them. Many people find it, like, extremely accurate and weirdly so, and they can't really figure out why. So, you know, I mean, it's it's something that I think it's easy to be skeptical about. And the people, um, lots of the people commenting on your piece, that was the point point of view they were coming from. But it's funny, like midwives everywhere say that there are more babies born in a full moon. Yeah. And the stuff like that that you think, how how do you explain that? Yeah. And it's anecdotal, but people who deal with society at, at sort of its baseline core Um, often report that more is happening on full moons, right? Like police have to employ more people because there are more fights that break out. The moon is is a weird one. One person who really has given it credibility in history is Carl Jung, the founder of analytical psychology, who was really interested in astrology because even though he thought the correlations were coincidental, he considered it one of the oldest forms of categorizing people into archetypes. You know, this is a practice that began with the ancient Babylonians, and it's been practiced by most ancient cultures and now many modern cultures. He called it the, like, psychology of antiquity. You know, he wrote to Sigmund Freud once, I make horoscopic calculations in order to find a clue to the core of psychological truth. Mm. That like, it was the first time that we were putting people in categories to understand them. And those categories still hold up today. Yeah, and to me, that's what's most interesting about astrology is this idea of psychoanalysis and character types. Yeah. 
We asked our followers on the FT's Instagram if they care whether astrology is real or not, and 68% said no. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I think that my friend Jade put it really interestingly, and, and she kind of spoke to our generation's relationship with astrology well. She said, I like it, and I believe in it, and I think it's entire nonsense, and I also think it's the most important thing in the world, and I don't know which is which. And you have to be okay for it to be both and neither. If it's something that opens you up creatively and provides calm, it's good. If it's something that limits what you do, it's bad. So I'm interested in what what the appeal is exactly. Like, what do people think about astrology? Yeah, I have some theories about that. A lot of our listeners also sent in audio notes, so we're going to play a few of those now. Hi, Culture Call. My name is Sarah Quiroz, and I'm calling from New York, New York. Keeping up with all the transits and various astrological occurrences has helped me to understand my relationships with other people and the world around me. I think it gives a really good outside perspective and a way to kind of take a second look at um, something that you might otherwise make a snap judgment on. This one is from Julia Sammons from the UK. Astrology is important to me because I really believe in gut instinct. So when I read my horoscope, I'm not looking for it to tell me specific things about how my week's going to go. I'm just looking for it to show back to me what I think I already knew in my gut anyway. This one is from Kimberly Taz from Southern Pine, North Carolina. I like astrology. Uh, I have the CoStar app on my phone. I go into it about every other day. Usually when I'm having a bad day, it sends me a notification. It's like, today will be better if you navigate through the world paying attention to cre your creativity or something like that. And it's not a bad reminder that you have agency in this world and to take a moment and remember that I'm this little person in this really big place. And this one is a little bit of a different point of view from Rohan Shah in London. Hey, Lila and Grizz. I think astrology is a load of nonsense. I think it's funny that people can say because you were born at a specific time of year that you have a characteristic like spontaneity when reality is anyone can assert themselves to any star sign. Cheers. So there are theories flying around all over the place about why, but why do you think, Lila, that astrology is on the rise now again? Okay. I think that there are three reasons. Um, you know, we live in a chaotic time and there's more internet addiction and people are more anxious and less reliable. So the things that I think really have made this different are one, the internet, mm -hmm. two, spirituality and identity that changing and three, separation from nature. Yeah. I mean, these are three, these are three big themes. <laughs> <laughs> Just little things. Uh, just a few. I'm interested first in asking you about tech, because that seems like one of the structural things that's changed. Um, I was thinking actually about my mother-in-law, who in, I suppose, the late 80s, early 90s, commissioned birth charts for her sons. And when I was asking her about it, it struck me that that was a real undertaking. This was something that took weeks to do. And she has these bound volumes of, of beautiful astrological readings. So the tech has changed. Yes, the internet has blown open the door basically, um, on access to astrology. Rebecca Gordon said it's the best PR that a professional astrologer could ever ask for. Um, and as you're saying now, it can happen in a nanosecond. Yeah. And it, it makes me think about how it sits alongside the other apps that we might have in our phone. Mm. You might have CoStar or another astrology app. You might have a, a sleep tracker, a calorie counter, a step counter. And 
it feels like all of these things are kind of a form of self-optimization. So how efficient can I be? Can I be better, faster, stronger, more beautiful? Can I achieve more? It's kind of self-knowledge and sort of self-data, but but sort of as a tool to sharpen your life. Right. And I, and actually kind of overwhelm you. It's, there's something kind of it. sinister about it. Yeah, for sure. It reminds me, and probably you, of that Gia Tolentino interview that you did a few yeah. episodes ago, which if anyone's listening who, who likes this topic, you'll, they will love that episode. Um, she talks a ton about self-optimization in yeah. the internet era. Yeah. And how self-optimization is part of um, kind of being a millennial and being Gen Z and that that's something that probably because of technology that is in our psyche. You said that, that there were three things that there was basically tech, spirituality and identity and then also nature and our connection with the natural world. And that second one about spirituality and about identity and who we think we are really reminded me of your interview with Esther Perel a couple of a couple of episodes ago and what she said about our generation being the quote identity generation Mm -hmm. and it seems like astrology is sort of another way of thinking about identity yeah there is a really incredible pew study that i read um that said that 27 percent of americans now think of themselves as spiritual but not religious and that's up Hmm. eight percent in five years um so that's kind of has an upward trajectory And that makes sense, right? Like people are sort of less connected to a church. Humans have always looked for greater meaning, but they tend to search like more urgently when there's an unstable political moment, Mm -hmm. which it seems that we're in now and in many countries. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like it. Um, And, you know, there's like no moral code to astrology and there's no sin. And it's not attached to an inherited culture in the same way. Like the only edict seems to be do what's right for you personally. And that's kind of it. One of our followers on the FT's Instagram account uh, who responded to our call out called A.D. Williams said that astrology is at best a salve and at worst an excuse for people's actions (laughs) and that it's like organized religion with fewer rules. And I thought that was a good point. It's a very good point. That's a huge appeal of astrology, I think. Yeah. Um, And the other thing is that identity wise, it gives us sort of a narrative arc, right? It helps us understand who we are and where we're going. And a lot of people that I spoke to they said that they look to astrology when they're down or when they're unsure hmm. or when they're worried, not when they're feeling their best. You know, it was really interesting to hear the kinds of clients that Rebecca sees, why they come in to see her and what they're looking for. Most millennials and Gen Z are coming into my office with that question of, wait, I'm pretty miserable in my career path. Who am I really? What is the best path for me? They're realizing the path they've, the road they've been on that's been paved with all those little pit stops along the way is not really who they are. And they're so willing to jump off the merry-go-round. Usually the initial consultation is in some point of crisis of what's going on in my life. I don't know why the rug was just pulled out from under me in this job or this relationship or something has just, it, something has just gone out of sorts and they're looking for meaning and understanding Yeah, and that's like as old as time, isn't it? That sense of wanting to reach to something bigger. Yes. Faith, uh, community, whatever it might be to to sort of explain things and and get a handle on. For sure. And this is one that is in our phones and updated all the time. (laughs) (laughs) The other part that really feels specific about it is Jung's point, which is that it gives us a psychological shorthand basically to get deep in, in polite company quite quickly. 
Um, right? We can categorize ourselves in relation to each other. I can tell you who I am without telling you my life history by mm -hmm. just saying my moon is in Pisces, which means I'm a very sensitive person at heart. I mean, it's it's the Myers-Briggs of, uh, yeah. of, of the planets. <laughs> there are trends around astrology that have been sort of emerging all at the same time. Yeah. Another one is witches and witch culture. Totally. The, the return of the witch and kind of everything to do with the occult and sort of magic and the dark arts. They've been kind of receiving this renewed attention. And it's not like people suddenly believe in witches, but it's almost like witches are a tool for thinking about, particularly women, I think, and thinking about this kind of present day feminism. Um, you know, the history of witches is basically a misogynistic history. Um, women being punished for being odd or not quite fitting into a social fabric. And so, like astrology, the idea of the witch is sort of a way of thinking about what society is like now, like the idea of a witch hunt. Yeah. And to reclaim the role of the witch is the same as reclaiming the role of the bitch or reclaiming mm. the role of the slut or reclaiming, you know, there's so many words yeah. um, and so many things that are associated with femininity that now women can, can own as something powerful. That's so true. It's kind of taking something that was a slander and saying like, no, this is great. I'm going to embrace my witchiness. Um, there was this book of poetry out earlier this year, which by this quite kind of serious um, academic, Rebecca Tomash. And then that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's kind of like the seven best Instagram witches to follow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you see it sort of cutting through culture like that. Yes. It reminds me of an episode of Broad City, um, if you've seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, it. it was it was called Witches. Uh, it's on Comedy Central. And it starts with um, its two friends. And it starts with Abby finding her first gray hair and Alana saying like, that's it. You're a witch. That's an amazing <laughs> thing to be. Um, and so they're sort of channeling their inner witches over the course of the episode. And Alana's doing exercises envisioning powerful women like Beyonce and Michelle Obama and Malala. Um, <laughs> and then at the end, a bunch of women like howl together at the moon. And, and that's it. We are now all witches. <laughs> so that that's the kind of side of it, which I think is quite fun and playful and kind of empowering. That's true. Although it kind of depends on the culture, right? Um, and that's not something we've talked about yet, but... I spoke with an intern on my team, Priyanka Vora, and she's from India, and she found it really culturally fascinating and weird that we're seeing astrology as this new way to understand ourselves better because, and sort of be free of certain mm. prescriptive models because she finds astrology quite prescriptive in itself. Birth charts are baked into the caste system in India, um, and when you get an arranged marriage, the first thing they look at is your compatibility. Uh, if that's not compatible, it's a it's a no go. Uh, and if it is, then it's written in the stars kind of no matter how you feel. So she spent her life trying to distance herself from it because it's been used for her as a repressive tool versus a freeing one. And a lot of people that she knows are the same. So I find that interesting that modern Indian culture is trying to pull away from something as we're kind of pressing forward. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense to me because it serves a cultural need. Right. So that will be dependent on the culture. Yes. The third reason that you kind of identified for why astrology might be becoming so popular now, particularly thinking of America now and, and this country as well, the more technology is baked into your life, the more divorced you are from nature and the kind of rhythms of the natural world, the more you yearn for those things. Mm. And I'm interested, I mean, if just for example, in publishing, there's been like this huge boom of nature writing recently, like suddenly books about um, 
our connection to trees, for example, <laughs> are really commercial. And there are books about wild swimming and forest bathing, which literally means just being in a forest. <laughs> you know, city dwelling millennials like us communing with nature is really popular now. And I wonder if, if the resurgence of astrology is also to do with having some kind of connection to natural cycles. Yes, that's something that Rebecca Gordon reinforced. There used to be things like eclipses and solstices that would connect us pretty deeply um, via rituals to the earth and to the sky. And those things um, we're sort of losing our relationship with. And we're in an era that everyone knows is defined by like increasing anxiety and increasing reliance on on our phones and, you know, the times where we used to be in our thoughts, going to collect wood or even going to wait for the bus. We don't have that time anymore. Mm. We're sort of in another virtual place. Like we're scrolling and uh, that would make a yearning for something like astrology stronger. So that's the big picture stuff. We know that astrology is essentially a tool for self-reflection and self-indulgence. So we're <laughs> going to go there. Cool. I'm a, I'm a skeptical person, but I did lose an entire lunch break to co-star reading about my personality, which was at times uncomfortable. Um, it said things like, you push things forward stubbornly. Thanks. <laughs> But of course, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I feel like there's nothing more interesting than ourselves, right? You know, when you see a photograph of a group, you always zone in on you first. You're like, right. does my hair look okay in this picture? And everyone does it, I think. Yes. It's not just me. No, everyone does it. <laughs> and I guess the question is, does it make you feel good after? Or does it make you feel bad? Yeah, I mean, actually, it made me, it, for me, an hour, you know, I spent, a, I spent my whole lunch break doing this. And that was too much time. And I felt kind of sullied and dirty afterwards. Like it had just emerged from this really narcissistic internet rabbit hole of reading about my personality from like an app that yeah, some of it was true. Some of it was very accurate. And I felt like, oh, God. Um, and yet some of it wasn't true at all. Right. So, and I, I mean, I it's really mixed. it's yeah. an algorithm. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're, a robot is telling you who yes. you are. Yeah, so it's interesting because my piece uh, ended up being partially about the fact that the apps are the thing that's getting venture interest, but actually the more interesting and fulfilling experience is the one that's harder to scale, which is the one where you're uh, with a person who is trained as sort of a counselor and also a um, interpreter <laughs> um, to tell you who you are. So it's still self-indulgent, but but it's a different experience. And so we had Rebecca Gordon in to look at our compatibilities with each other as co-hosts, and we're going to play that next. So Grizz and I are in the early stages of our relationship as co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have been doing Culture Call for um, less than six months, and uh, I was hoping that you could take a look at our compatibility and uh, see what the planets say. I absolutely love this compatibility chart, first of all. I'm extremely nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're very different because Lila is a Libra and Grizz is an Aries. And these are the two most opposite signs. Grizz is the one that says, I'm pressing the pedal and we're going to go in this direction now. <laughs> Lila, being a Libra, she is also an initiator but she will more so hold the space. Libra is a sign of you. Aries is a sign of me. There's a simpatico they have as well because they're opposites. And opposite signs will always see eye to eye. 
I do see probably Grizz as the one who's pressing them down down the pedal here. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't comment. <laughs> this has been Grizz's podcast for a number of years. Um, I just joined recently. Oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So Grizz is steering the ship here. Um, but, but I love that there's just such a watery connection, though, between you two, as you both have water moon signs. Moon in Cancer, Moon in Pisces, which is just very sweet, understanding. And you, there's a beautiful flow together overall. What I would say is that because I see Grizz's Uranus is on Lila's Ascendant, this is a relationship of extreme innovation, new ideas, and disrupting the way that things have been done completely. So I would encourage you both to take risks um, as much as possible. Also to have conversations about where these will be, so not to surprise the other person too much. Wow. Um, did that ring true to you? <laughs> um, it sort of did, but also she really played to our egos there. So it was a mix. My younger siblings would really recognize the characterization of me that Rebecca has given. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that she made you sound a little more like a steamroller <laughs> <laughs> than I have ever experienced you. But, you know, it's interesting, though, because I'm wondering whether like all of this thinking about your traits and what might not be good about you. That's that's a good thing to do. But it's quite anxious making. Yeah. You know, and I wonder one of the reasons astrology is on the rise is because of increasing anxiety. And yet, actually, it could be a cause of anxiety, having all of this information supposedly about your personality as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, it quite literally situates us in a chart in the center of the universe. <laughs> and it asks how the universe is really revolving around us. Mm. Okay, so enough about us. Um, I am done uh, self-reflecting for at least the rest of 2019. <laughs> now we are going to... Share with the listeners what we have been teasing for a long time now, which is we asked Rebecca Gordon for her predictions on the U.S. 2020 elections and on Brexit. Um, we're going to play them for you now, and time will tell whether her predictions hold up. Well, first of all, I'll say in 2016, when I was looking at the charts, so many people were asking me who's going to win and all of that. And I pretty much just look at Jupiter and Saturn. I say, well, the president's going to be a match to those sort of sign. I saw a lot of fire in the sky. I saw Saturn and Sagittarius. The president who wins is going to be a fiery person. Now, this time around, Jupiter and Saturn will both be in Earth signs during the time of the election, meaning that who wins this election is not going to be a fiery person. This will be a grounded, stable, earthy person that wants to deliberately build new structures and new systems for us to inhabit. Is, is there a candidate that really seems to be like the perfect match for that day? So Pete Buttigieg has a fascinating chart, and I think we all need to keep our eye on him. The first reason for that is because he's born right before a solar eclipse. Now, throughout history, many of our presidents are born on or near a solar eclipse. As well, many kings have been mm. also famous leaders. In fact, a solar eclipse birthday is known as the kingmaker in astrology. So as soon as I saw Pete's chart, I saw that kingmaker signature. And it made me think, if not president, then he's certainly stepping up into power in some other way. He's probably the only candidate who has so many planets in Capricorn and Aquarius, which is where all of the outer planets are moving, meaning that his values will be in direct alignment to where our culture is going. 
The United Kingdom is going through a period of transition as well. Uh, they had the Brexit vote in June of 2016, and um, it still hasn't been resolved. And I'm wondering if you can see anything um, about what's to come for them. What we're going to see this December is that Jupiter, which rules new opportunity and openness, is coming into the sign of Capricorn. So the wind will change direction come December. And 2020 actually looks like a year of more possibility. However, this entire restructuring period, it's going to last for quite a while Hmm. as Pluto will be in Capricorn until around 2024. And after 2024, we we will probably be in a very new landscape. So that is Rebecca's prediction. Support who you support. Uh, And let's return to this in a year and see what happens. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for your voice notes for this episode. We loved getting them. For our next episode, we'd like you to send us your best cultural recommendations for 2019. You can find us on Twitter at FTCultureCall, or you can email the show at culturecall at FT.com. And those emails go straight to Lila and me. If you like what you hear, the best way to help support the show is by recommending it to your friends. Uh, You can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. We will both be back in two weeks' time in our usual spots in London and New York with a special episode of our 2019 Cultural Highlights. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatim.